What wives wish their husbands knew about women? By Dr. James Dobson, Tyndale House Publishers, Wheaton, Illinois. Chapter Five: Loneliness, Isolation, and Boredom, and Absence of Romantic Love in Marriage. It is altogether fitting that the women completing my questionnaire would rank their third and fourth most common sources of depression in a dead-even tie. These items are inseparably linked in many other ways as well. I am referring to the familiar despair associated with loneliness, isolation, and boredom, along with its related malady, absence of romantic love in marriage. I doubt if there is a marriage counselor alive who has gone through a single day of his practice without hearing about these twin complaints. A closer look at the women's responses reveals a highly significant trend among American housewives. Fully one third of the group ranked three items within the top five: low self-esteem, loneliness, isolation, and boredom, and absence of romantic love. The ladies were saying, in effect, one, I don't like myself; two, I have no meaningful relationships outside my home; and three, I am not even close to the man I love. These three categories obviously encompass the whole world. These young, attractive wives and mothers admitted to being emotionally isolated from all other human beings on Earth. And therein lies the greatest source of feminine discontent in 20th-century America. Feelings of self-worth and acceptance, which provide the cornerstone of a healthy personality, can be obtained from only one source. It cannot be bought or manufactured. Self-esteem is only generated by what we see reflected about ourselves in the eyes of other people. It is only when others respect us that we respect ourselves. It is only when others love us that we love ourselves. It is only when others find us pleasant and desirable and worthy that we come to terms with our own egos. Occasionally, a person is created with such towering self-confidence that he doesn't seem to need the acceptance of other people, but he is indeed a rare bird. The vast majority of us are dependent on our associates for emotional sustenance each day. What does this say then about those who exist in a state of perpetual isolation, being deprived of loving, caring human contact year after year? Such people are virtually certain to experience feelings of worthlessness and its stepchildren, deep depression and despair. Why do housewives, particularly, allow themselves to be sealed off from meaningful relationships and associations outside their homes? Why does their natural course seem to take them toward further loneliness and emotional deprival? I believe there are at least six explanations for the isolation of women today, and I think we should examine each of them briefly. One. Small children isolate a mother. It's such a hassle to pack the porta crib 
and the diapers and all the supportive paraphernalia in the car and go off to visit a friend. Mom has to wonder if it's worth the effort. Then, too, the kids won't play by themselves and they keep the women from enjoying the occasion anyway. And if the youngsters are not well disciplined, their mother is embarrassed to take them anywhere and the invitations become more scarce from her former friends who simply can't stand to have her brats in their houses. Thus, the mothers of preschool children often give up and stay at home, spending month after month predominantly in the company of little people. I have heard of one such mother who was finally given an opportunity to get out of the house. Her husband's company had prepared a banquet in honor of retiring employees, and she was seated beside the president himself. She was very nervous about talking to a real, live adult again. She feared she might revert to baby talk during the course of the evening. To her surprise, however, she conversed without a flaw through the entire meal, speaking of world events and current political conditions. Then she realized with dismay that throughout their conversation, she had been dutifully cutting the president's meat and wiping his mouth with her napkin. I suppose you could call this a homemaker's occupational hazard. 2. Though avant-garde feminists may chew me to pieces for saying so, it is my observation that women can be absolutely vicious with each other. Having supervised female employees through the years, I have stood in amazement as they scratched and clawed one another over the most minor conflicts. One explosion of monumental consequence began with a disagreement among four secretaries about which deodorant was the most effective. Can you imagine four red-faced women screaming at each other over whether to spray it or roll it on? The real conflict, of course, involved resentment having nothing to do with deodorant. I have employed two or three particularly talented antagonists who could stir up more trouble in an afternoon than I could untangle in a week. But this same competitiveness and suspicion is also represented among homemakers, I believe. There are many women who simply can't stand other women. There are other less aggressive individuals who are greatly threatened by their feminine associates. Such a woman wouldn't think of inviting the girls over for tea unless she had spit-shined her house inside and out and prepared a super delicious dessert. And those who have nicer homes will never be invited to the cottages of women who are embarrassed by their humble dwellings. And those whose husbands have professional, higher-paying jobs are often deeply resented by those who must struggle to pay the utility bills each month. In summary, Women are often pitted against the very people whom they need for mutual respect and acceptance. The result is loneliness and boredom. 3. Feelings of inferiority themselves serve to isolate women and men from each other. I have already stated the converse. Isolation increases inferiority. These two conditions often interact in a vicious cycle, spiraling ever downward into despair and loneliness. The woman who has no friends, and I mean no real friends, feels too inferior to make new social contacts, and her failure to make friends makes her feel even more inferior. 
a homemaker in this predicament, is a prime candidate for secret alcoholism, or drug abuse, or even suicide. She is desperate for meaningful contact with people, yet her behavior is often misinterpreted by her peers as being stuck up, cold, aloof, or self-sufficient. 4. Women are often less successful in finding outside interests and activities than are their masculine counterparts. Men typically love sporting events and draw great enthusiasm from following the televised games of the home team. Women do not. Men usually like to hunt and fish and hike in the wilderness. Women stay home and wait for them. Men like to bowl and play golf and tennis and basketball and softball. Women watch while yawning on the sidelines. Men like to build and fix things and work in the garage. Women remain inside washing the dishes. Men find recreation in boating and auto racing and everything mechanical. Women are bored with such nonsense. Now, obviously, these are generalizations which have innumerable exceptions. But the fact remains that men usually lack the time to pursue all their varied interests, while wives may find it difficult to generate much genuine enthusiasm for anything. I suspect that the cultural influences of early childhood stamp a certain passivity on little girls, constricting their field of interests. For whatever reasons, the world of women is typically more narrow than that of men. For proof of this fact, listen to the conversations of the women as opposed to men at your next social gathering. The feminine discussion will probably center around children, cosmetics, and other people's behaviors. The men will talk about a much greater variety of topics. It should not be surprising, then, that boredom ranks high as a source of depression among women. Number 5. Fatigue and time pressure, discussed in the last chapter, must also serve to isolate the mothers of small children. There simply isn't enough time and energy to open the door to the outside world. 6. Financial limitations in an inflationary economy certainly restrict the activities of homemakers. We will discuss these problems in a subsequent chapter. Certainly, there are many reasons why homemakers can find themselves lonely, isolated, and bored, even if they live in the midst of six million other lonely people. And what agitation is caused by their emptiness? One writer said, Everybody must be somebody to somebody to be anybody. I agree. A lyricist expressed a similar concept in his song entitled, You're nobody till somebody loves you. Dr. William Glasser explained this same psychological principle in his popular text, Reality Therapy. At all times in our lives, we must have at least one person who cares about us and whom we care for ourselves. If we do not have this essential person, we will not be able to fulfill our basic needs. Obviously, we human beings are social animals and must continually depend on each other for emotional stability.
Emotional Differences Between Men and Women At this point, I offer a message of great importance to every husband who loves and wants to understand his wife. Whereas men and women have the same needs for self-worth and belonging, they typically satisfy those needs differently. A man derives his sense of worth primarily from the reputation he earns in his job or profession. He draws emotional satisfaction from achieving in business, becoming financially independent, developing a highly respected craft or skill, supervising others, becoming boss, or by being loved and appreciated by his patients or clients or fellow businessmen. The man who is successful in these areas does not depend on his wife as his primary shield against inferiority. Of course, she plays an important role as his companion and lover, but she isn't essential to his self-respect day by day. By contrast, a homemaker approaches her marriage from a totally different perspective. She does not have access to other sources of self-esteem commonly available to her husband. She can cook a good dinner, but once it is eaten, her family may not even remember to thank her for it. Her household duties do not bring her respect in the community, and she is not likely to be praised for the quality of her dusting techniques. Therefore, the more isolated she becomes, as we have discussed, the more vital her man will be to her sense of fulfillment, confidence, and well-being. He must be that one person of whom Dr. Glasser wrote, and if he is not, she is unable to fulfill her basic needs. That spells trouble with a capital T. Let's reduce it to a useful oversimplification. Men derive self-esteem by being respected. Women feel worthy when they are loved. This may be the most important personality distinction between the sexes. This understanding helps explain the unique views of marriage as seen by men and women. A man can be contented with a kind of business partnership in marriage, provided sexual privileges are part of the arrangement. As long as his wife prepares his dinner each evening, is reasonably amiable, and doesn't nag him during football season, he can be satisfied. The romantic element is nice, but not necessary. However, this kind of surface relationship drives his wife utterly wild with frustration. She must have something more meaningful. Women yearn to be the special sweethearts of their men, being respected and appreciated and loved with tenderness. This is why a homemaker often thinks about her husband during the day and eagerly awaits his arrival home. It explains why their wedding anniversary is more important to her and why he gets clobbered when he forgets it. It explains why she is constantly reaching for him when he is at home, trying to pull him out of the newspaper or television set. It explains why absence of romantic love in my marriage ranks so high as a source of depression among women, whereas men would have rated it somewhere in the vicinity of last place. As stated in the early pages of this book, Women often find it impossible to convey their needs for romantic affection to their husbands. One fellow listened carefully as I explained the frustration his wife had expressed to me. He promptly went out 
and bought some flowers for her and rang the front doorbell. When she opened the door, he extended his arm and said, Here! Having met his marital responsibilities, he pushed past her and turned on the television set. His wife was not exactly overwhelmed by his generosity. Another man said, I just don't understand my wife. She has everything she could possibly want. She has a dishwasher and a new dryer, and we live in a nice neighborhood. I don't drink or beat the kids or kick the dog. I've been faithful since the day we were married, but she's miserable and I can't figure out why. His love-starved wife would have traded the dishwasher, the dryer, and the dog for a single expression of genuine tenderness from her unromantic husband. Appliances do not build self-esteem, and being somebody's sweetheart most certainly does. Instead of building confidence and preserving romantic excitement, many men seem determined to do the opposite, particularly in public. Have you ever watched a person, usually a man, play the popular game called Assassinate the Spouse? Any number of couples can play this destructive game, and its objective is simple. Each contestant attempts to punish his mate by ridiculing and embarrassing her in front of their friends. Although he can hurt her verbally when they are alone, he can cut her to pieces when onlookers are present. And if he wants to be especially vicious, he lets the guests know he thinks she is dumb and ugly. Those are the two places where she is most vulnerable. Bonus points are awarded if he can reduce her to tears. Why would anyone want to publicize his, or her, resentment in this manner? The reason is that hostility seeks its own ventilation, and most angry people find their feelings difficult to contain. But how unfortunate is the couple who slug it out before spectators? This brutal game has no winners. The contest ends when one player is totally divested of his self-respect and dignity. I have often wished there were an acceptable method for men and women to ventilate their feelings in private. A golfer can pound the ball around an 18-hole course and somehow feel more tranquil in the clubhouse. Weekend basketball players throw their elbows at each other in the gymnasium and thereby reduce their frustrations and tensions. Professional hockey players unload their anxieties by smashing their opponents with their sticks and skates. Unfortunately, however, there is no convenient method for husbands and wives to work out their hostilities. They can only glare at each other in silence across a room. I have given considerable thought to this problem, and I believe I have a workable solution. I am proposing that every well-designed home of the future be equipped with a bumper car rink, the kind that is found at all state fairgrounds and amusement parks. If you've ever watched the drivers of these vehicles smashing each other at full speed, you've seen their dilated eyes and the wicked grins on their faces. They bellow with delight when they catch an unsuspecting driver broadside, knocking his car across the rink. Wouldn't it be great if a husband and wife could schedule one hour a day, probably from 5 to 6 p.m., on a bumper car track? I can hear them muttering as they smash each other's cars, Ha! That's what you get for being so stingy with our money.
or take that. That'll teach you to be so grouchy when you come home. After 50 hits each, a bell would ring, signaling the end of the hour, and the two cleansed drivers would emerge as lovely friends for the remainder of the evening. Do you suppose the world is ready for this remedy just yet? The 5,000-year-old solution There is still no substitute for the biblical prescription for marriage, nor will its wisdom ever be replaced. A successful husband and wife relationship begins with the attitude of the man. He has been ordained by God as the head of the family, and the responsibility for its welfare rests upon his shoulders. This charge can be found in the early writings of Moses in the Old Testament, returning at least 5,000 years into Jewish history. Deuteronomy 24.5 reads, A newly married man is not to be drafted into the army, nor given any other responsibilities. For a year he shall be free to be at home, happy with his wife. Imagine the luxury. Newlyweds were given one full year in which to adjust to married life, with no responsibilities or duties during that period. I must admit that I don't know what they did with their time after the first three weeks, but it sounds like fun anyway. Compare it with the first year of marriage in this day, when the man and woman are both working, going to school, and all too frequently the bride is facing the biological, emotional, and financial tensions of a pregnancy. But my point in quoting this scripture is better illustrated by the last sentence as stated in the King James Version. It reads, And he, the husband, shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. Early Mosaic law made it clear that the emotional well-being of a wife is the specific responsibility of her husband. It was his job to cheer her. Friends, it still is. This message is for the man whose own ego needs have drawn him to achieve super success in life, working seven days a week and consuming himself in a continual quest for power and status. If his wife and children do not fit into his schedule somewhere, he deserves the conflict that is certainly coming. This masculine charge should also be heeded by the husband who hoards his non-working hours for his own pleasures, fishing every weekend, burying his head in the television set, or living on the golf course. Everyone needs recreation, and these activities have an important reconstructive role to play. But when our enjoyment begins to suffocate those who need us, those whose very existence depends on our commitment, it has gone too far and requires regulation. Derek Prince has expressed this viewpoint even more strongly. He feels that the troubles America is facing, particularly with reference to the family, can be traced to what he calls renegade males. The word renegade actually means one who has reneged. We men have ignored our God-given responsibility to care for the welfare of our families, to discipline our children, to supervise the expenditure of the financial resources, to assume spiritual leadership, to love and to cherish and protect. Instead, we have launched ourselves on a lifetime ego trip, thinking only of our needs and our pleasures and our status. 
Is it any wonder that low self-esteem is a problem among our women? Is it surprising that loneliness, isolation, and boredom have reached critical proportions? Both these canyons of depression are dug by the deterioration of relationships between husbands and wives, and we men are in the best position to improve the situation. Am I recommending that men dominate their wives, ruling with an iron fist and robbing them of individuality? Certainly not. Again, the prescription for a successful marriage is found in the Bible, where the concept of the family originated. God, who created the entire universe, should be able to tell us how to live together harmoniously. He has done just that, as written in Ephesians 5, verses 28 to 33. That is how husbands should treat their wives, loving them as part of themselves. For since a man and his wife are now one, a man is really doing himself a favor and loving himself when he loves his wife. No one hates his own body, but lovingly cares for it, just as Christ cares for his body, the church, of which we are parts. That the husband and wife are one body is proved by the scripture which says, A man must leave his mother and father when he marries, so that he can be perfectly joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. I know this is hard to understand, but it is an illustration of the way we are parts of the body of Christ. So I say again, a man must love his wife as part of himself, and the wife must see to it that she deeply respects her husband, obeying, praising, and honoring him. There is certainly no room for masculine oppression within that formula. The husband is charged with loving leadership within the family, but he must recognize his wife's feelings and needs as being one with his own. When she hurts, he hurts, and takes steps to end the pain. What she wants, he wants, and satisfies her needs. And through all this, his wife deeply respects, praises, and even obeys her loving husband. If this one prescription were applied within the American family, we would have little need for divorce courts, alimony, visiting rights, crushed children, broken hearts, and shattered lives. Now, if we appear to be blaming all marital and family woes on husbands, let me clarify the point. For every complaint women have against men, there is a corresponding bellyache on the other end of the line and I'm certain that I've heard them all. Women can be just as selfish and irresponsible as their men. How many wives have let themselves go, waddling around on massive rhino haunches and looking like they had spent the night in a tornado? How many husbands come home every night to a wrecked house, dirty kids, and a nagging, groaning, overindulged wife? King Solomon must have known such a sweetheart, for he wrote, It is better to live in the corner of an attic than with a crabby woman in a lovely home. Proverbs 21, verse 9 Neither sex has a monopoly on offensive behavior. But for those who accept God's design for the family, 
it is clear that husbands bear the initial responsibility for correcting the problem. This obligation is implicit in the role of leadership assigned to males. Where does it begin? By men treating their wives with the same dignity and attention that they give to their own bodies. Quote, loving them even as Christ loved the church, giving his life for it. End quote. What a challenge! If this be male chauvinism, then may the whole masculine world be swept by its philosophy. Would it be ostentatious for me to give a personal illustration at this point? I hope not, and ask that the reader not interpret this statement as boasting. My wife Shirley and I have applied the biblical prescription in our own marriage, and have found it valid and true. Having been with Shirley daily since we were married 14 years ago, I still enjoy the pleasure of her company. In fact, if I could choose anyone on earth with whom to spend a free evening, Shirley would rank at the top of the list. She feels the same way about me, which is even more remarkable. I suppose it can be summarized this way. Shirley and I are not just married to one another. We are also best friends. Does this mean that we never have strong differences of opinion? Certainly not. Does it mean that we float along on a pink cloud of adolescent romanticism every day of our lives? No chance. Does it mean that irritability and other human frailties have been conquered? Not likely. Perhaps I should tell you about our one absolutely unresolvable problem. There is an area of difficulty between us which defies correction or mediation and I have even lost hope of ever coming to terms with it. Shirley and I operate on totally different thermostats. Even though we have become, quote, one body, we have vastly differing ideas of how hot it should be. My wife is cold at least 11 months out of the year, thawing momentarily during the summer. She warmed up last August 14th for about an hour, right around noon, and then froze over again. Wouldn't you know that I stay overheated the year round and gasp for a cool breeze in the California sunshine? This differing viewpoint produces some dramatic struggles for control of the heating unit in our home. A man's home is his castle, they say, but in my case, it's a furnace. Obviously, the success of my relationship with Shirley does not result from human perfection on either part. It is simply a product of caring for the feelings, needs, and concerns of the other. It is giving, not grabbing. Or as it is stated in the marriage vows, in honor preferring one another. And by some strange quirk of human nature, that attitude produces self-esteem by the bushel. A Closer Look at Reality Having described the domestic responsibilities of husbands and fathers in graphic detail, we are now obligated to consider some very thorny questions which perplex the wives of men who haven't been listening. Let's face it, only 20% of the readers of this kind of book are likely to be men. Therefore, we cannot ignore the plight of the women whose husband ought to but doesn't. 
What should be her attitude if he is continually unsympathetic to her emotional needs and longings? What if he refuses to accept his designated role as the loving, caring leader of the family? How should a wife cope with emotional abandonment, playing second fiddle to his job, or televised sports, or a consuming hobby, or even another woman? It would be almost unethical for me to write on the subject of depression in women without confronting these issues head-on. For if my observations are accurate, most women have sought to answer those lingering questions for themselves. Before offering my views on this subject, however, let's pause to examine the suggestions of others. Let's suppose that a lonely, discouraged wife visits her local bookstore to seek advice and counsel in the writings of the experts. Assuming that the most popular books would probably provide the greatest help, she examines the more prominently displayed volumes in the marriage and family section of the store. The first text that she considers is entitled Open Marriage, which proclaims itself to be the number one bestseller in America. If she buys and reads it, she will learn that marriage is far healthier when swinging husbands and wives keep a little hanky-panky going on the side. Get the message now. A man and woman, so the authors say, will be inexorably drawn together by knowing that their mate might be sleeping with someone new tomorrow night. Can't you visualize Jack coming home at 6 a.m. for breakfast and his wife saying, Where have you been, honey? Oh, he replies, I slept with Janice last night and I'm sure tired. Well, responds his sympathetic wife, I hope you won't be too worn out to babysit tonight, because I'll be spending the time with Paul. Ridiculous? Sure, but Open Marriage has sold a million copies to desperate and gullible readers. Moreover, the misguided writers of this unfortunate book have now become great authorities on family harmony, no less. Here's how Judith Viorst sees Open Marriage, as quoted from her article, Just because I'm married, does it mean I'm going steady? In Red Book magazine, dated May 1973. Quote, so why can't a husband go skiing with some other woman? Why can't a wife see a movie with some other man? Why can't a man have women for friends even after he's married? Why can't married women have friendships with men? I think I've got an answer to those questions, but maybe all I've got is a dirty mind. I've also got some statements from Nina and George O'Neill's book, Open Marriage, on the benefits of the broad-minded point of view. Frank says, If Janet goes out for an evening, I want her to have a good time, to have an interesting time. She shares her experiences with me, and I gain enrichment in my life. Another happy husband told the O'Neills, It's a great feeling to walk down the street, and know that if I meet someone, male or female, that I want to know, I can do it without feeling guilty. We can have a drink, take advantage of the spontaneity of the moment, and I don't have to worry about how I'm going to explain it all when I get home. Well, he's lucky he isn't married to someone like me, because, let me guarantee you, he'd have to feel guilty, and explain it all, especially the part that goes, take advantage of the spontaneity of the moment. But mine, the O'Neills would point out, is, alas, a closed marriage which augurs ill for my future married life.
The grass, they say, is greener on the other side of the fence only when you've bothered building fences. Lead us not into temptation, I say back. End quote. Sitting beside open marriage on the top shelf is another bestseller which would tell our depressed friend to sabotage her marriage altogether. It is entitled Creative Divorce and proposes some innovative concepts among them. Quote, Divorce is not the end. It is the beginning. Make it work for you. And to say goodbye is to say hello. Hello to a new life. To a new, freer, more self-assured you. Hello to new ways of looking at the world and of relating to people. Your divorce can be the very best thing that ever happened to you. End quote. How's that for an original approach to family life? Kick the bum out of the house and giggle your way into a world of continual delight and bliss. If our homemaker is given this irresponsible suggestion at the precise moment of her greatest despair, she may turn her sick marriage into a dead one. Every physician knows that it is easy to kill his patient. The skill comes in curing him. Yet, in creative divorce, the patient is told to ignore all other medications and remedies that might restore the health and vitality of his family life. I wish I knew how many marriages this single book has destroyed. The bombardment of irresponsible and damnable solutions to emotional isolation are seemingly endless at this time in history. If a concept is audacious and anti-Christian, you can bet that someone with professional degrees and credentials has recommended it during the past two decades. And he's probably sold it by the barrel to a confused and morally bankrupt populace. We have heard the noted anthropologist Dr. Margaret Mead advocate trial marriage for the young. We have been propagandized to accept communal marriage and contract marriage and cohabitation. Even our music has reflected our aimless groping for an innovative relationship between men and women. One such idea is that romantic love can survive only in the absence of permanent commitment. Singer Glenn Campbell translated this thought into music in his popular song entitled Gentle on My Mind. I'll paraphrase the lyrics. He said it was not the ink-stained signatures dried on some marriage certificate that kept his bedroll stashed behind the couch in his lover's home. It was knowing that he could get up and leave her any time he wished, that she had no hooks into his hide. It was the freedom to abandon her that kept her, quote, gentle on my mind. What a foolish notion. How utterly crass to think such a woman exists who could let her lover come and go with no feelings of loss, rejection, or abandonment. How ignorant it is of the power of love and sex to make us, quote, one flesh, inevitably ripping and tearing that flesh at the time of separation. And, of course, Brother Campbell's song said nothing about the little children who are born from such a relationship, each one wondering if Daddy will be there tomorrow morning, if he will help them pay their bills, or if he'll be out by a railroad track somewhere 
sipping coffee from a tin can and thinking the good thoughts in the back roads of his mind. Can't you see his little woman standing with her children in the front doorway, waving a hanky and calling, Goodbye, dear. Drop in when you can. Despite the stupidity of this message, Gentle on My Mind reached the top of the record charts, purchased blindly by those who believe that uncommitted love offers a viable alternative to marriage. Obviously, the irresponsible, destructive solutions to naughty problems are not difficult to generate. They have always been easier to develop than those which provide a way out of the mire. Admittedly, I don't possess every answer to the problems I have posed. I know of no magical tricks that will turn a cold, unresponsive man into a compassionate, communicative, romantic dream machine. But I can offer some suggestions which I have found to be helpful in my counseling experience. First, a woman who wants to reignite the romantic fires in her husband must look for ways to teach him about her needs. As I have attempted to explain, men have different emotional needs than women, making it hard for them to comprehend the feelings and longings of their wives. To correct this lack of understanding, women often resort to nagging, pleading, scolding, complaining, and accusing. This is how it sounds to an exhausted man who has come home from work moments before. Won't you just put down that newspaper, George, and give me five minutes of your time? Five minutes. Is that too much to ask? You never seem to care about my feelings anyway. How long has it been since we went out for dinner? Even if we did, you'd probably take the newspaper along with you. I'll tell you, George, sometimes I think you don't care about me and the kids anymore. If just once, just once you would show a little love and understanding. I would drop dead from sheer shock, etc., etc., etc. I hope my feminine readers know that this verbal barrage at the end of a workday is not what I mean by teaching. It's like pounding George behind the ear with a two-by-four, and it rarely achieves more than a snarl when he gets up from the floor. Nagging shuts down communication with amazing efficiency. By contrast, teaching is a matter of timing, setting, and manner. First, timing. Select the moment when your husband is typically more responsive and pleasant. Perhaps that opportunity will occur immediately after the evening meal, or when the light goes out at night, or in the freshness of the morning. The worst time of the day is during the first 60 minutes after he arrives home from work. Yet this is the usual combat hour. Don't lumber into such heavy debate without giving it proper planning and forethought, taking advantage of every opportunity for the success of the effort. Number 2. Setting The ideal situation is to ask your husband to take you on an overnight or weekend trip to a pleasant area. If financial considerations will cause him to decline, save the money out of household funds or other resources. If it is impossible to get away, the next best alternative is to obtain a babysitter and go out to breakfast or dinner alone. If that too is out of the question, then select a time at home when the children are occupied and the phone can be taken off the hook. 
Generally speaking, however, the farther you can get him from home, with its cares and problems and stresses, the better will be your chance to achieve genuine communication. Thirdly, manner. It is extremely important that your husband does not view your conversation as a personal attack. We are all equipped with emotional defenses which rise to our aid when we are being vilified. Don't trigger those defensive mechanisms. Instead, your manner should be as warm, loving, and supportive as possible under the circumstances. Let it be known that you are attempting to interpret your needs and desires, not his inadequacies and shortcomings. Furthermore, you must take his emotional state into consideration as well. Postpone the conversation if he is under unusual stress from work, or if he isn't feeling well, or if he has been recently stung by circumstances and events. Then, when the timing, setting, and manner converge to produce a moment of opportunity, express your deep feelings as effectively as possible. Use the earlier sections of this book for ammunition, and like every good Boy Scout, be prepared. Of course, one conversation is rarely sufficient to produce a long-term change in behavior and attitude. The woman who wants to be understood will continually teach her husband about her feelings and desires while doing her best to meet his unique needs. Am I suggesting that a woman should crawl on her belly like a subservient puppy, begging her master for a pat on the head? Certainly not. It is of the highest priority to maintain a distinct element of dignity and self-respect throughout the husband-wife relationship. This takes us into a related area that requires the greatest emphasis. I have observed that many, if not most, marriages suffer from a failure to recognize a universal characteristic of human nature. We value that which we are fortunate to get. We discredit that with which we are stuck. We lust for the very thing which is beyond our grasp, and we disdain that same item when it becomes a permanent possession. No toy is ever as much fun to play with as it appeared to a wide-eyed child in a store. Seldom does an expensive automobile provide the satisfaction anticipated by the man who dreamed of its ownership. This principle is even more dramatically accurate in romantic affairs, particularly with reference to men. Let's look at the extreme case of a Don Juan, the perpetual lover who romps from one feminine flower to another. His heart throbs and pants after the elusive princess who drops her glass slipper as she flees. Every ounce of energy is focused on her capture. However, the intensity of his desire is dependent on her unavailability. The moment his passionate dreams materialize, he begins to ask himself, is this what I really want? Farther down the line, as the relationship progresses toward the routine circumstances of everyday life, he is attracted by new princesses and begins to wonder how he can escape the older model. Now, I would not imply that all men, or even the majority of them, are as exploitative and impermanent as the gadabout I described. But to a lesser degree, most men and women are impelled by the same urges. 
How many times have I seen a bored, tired relationship become a torrent of desire and longing the moment one partner rejects the other and walks out? After years of apathy, the dumb pea suddenly burns with romantic desire and desperate hope. This principle hits even closer to home for me at this moment. Right now, as I am writing these words, I am sitting in the waiting room of a large hospital while my wife is undergoing major abdominal surgery. I am writing to ease my tension and anxiety. While I have always been close to Shirley, my appreciation and tender love for her are maximal this morning. Less than five minutes ago, a surgeon emerged from the operating room with a grim face, informing the man near me that his wife is consumed with cancer. He spoke in unguarded terms of the unfavorable pathological report and the malignant infestation. I will be speaking to Shirley's surgeon within the hour, and my vulnerability is keenly felt. While my love for my wife has never flagged through our 14 years together, it has rarely as been intense as in this moment of threat. You see, not only are our emotions affected by the challenge of pursuit, but also by the possibility of irrevocable loss. The surgeon arrived as I was writing the sentence above, saying my wife came through the operation with no complications, and the pathologist recognized no abnormal tissue. I am indeed a grateful man. My deepest sympathy is with the less fortunate family whose tragedy I witnessed today. A better example of fickle emotions is illustrated by my early relationship with Shirley. When we first met, she was a lowly sophomore in college, and I was a lofty senior. I viewed myself as a big man on campus, and my relationship with this young co-ed mattered little to me. She, in turn, had been very successful with boys, and was greatly challenged by the independence I demonstrated. She wanted to win me primarily because she wasn't sure she could, but her enthusiasm inhibited my own interest in return. After graduation, we had one of those lengthy conversations well known to lovers the world over, when I said I wanted her to date other fellows while I was in the army, because I didn't plan to get married soon. I'll never forget her reaction. I expected Shirley to cry and hold on to me, Instead, she said, I've been thinking the same thoughts, and I would like to date other guys. Why don't we just go our separate ways for now? Her answer rocked me. For the first time in our relationship, she was moving away from me. What I didn't know was that Shirley stoically closed her front door and then cried all night. I went away to the army and returned to a nearby school, the University of Southern California, for my graduate training. By this time, Shirley was an exalted senior, and I was a collegiate has-been. She was homecoming queen, senior class president, a member of who's who in American colleges and universities, and one of the most popular girls in her class. And as might be expected, she suddenly looked very attractive to me. I began to call several times a day, complain about who she was spending her time with, and try to find ways to please my dream girl.
However, the moment Shirley saw my enthusiasm and anxiety, her affection began to die. Gone was the challenge which had attracted her two years before. Instead, I had become just another fellow pounding on her door and asking for favors. One day, after a particularly uninspiring date, I sat down at a desk and spent two solid hours thinking about what was happening. And during the course of that introspection, I realized the mistake I was making. A light flashed in my head, and I grabbed a pen and wrote ten changes I was going to make in our relationship. First, I was determined to demonstrate self-respect and dignity, even if I lost the one I now loved so deeply. Secondly, I decided to convey this attitude every time I got the chance. I'm going somewhere in my life, and I'm anxious to get there. I love you, and hope you choose to go with me. If you do, I'll give myself to you and try to make you happy. However, if you choose not to make the journey with me, then I can't force my will on you. The decision is yours, and I'll accept it. There were other elements to my new manner, but they all centered around self-confidence and independence. The first night when I applied the new formula was one of the most thrilling experiences of my life. The girl who was now my wife saw me starting to slip away on that evening, and she reacted with alarm. We were riding in silence in my car, and Shirley asked me to pull over to the curb and stop. When I did, she put her arms around my neck and said, I'm afraid I'm losing you and I don't know why. Do you still love me? I noticed by the reflected light of the moon that she had tears in her eyes. She obviously didn't hear my thumping heart as I made a little speech about my solitary journey in life. You see, I had re-established the challenge for Shirley, and she responded beautifully. The psychological force which produced our seesaw relationship is an important one, since it is almost universal in human nature. Forgive the redundancy, but I must restate the principle. We crave that which we can't attain, but we disrespect that which we can't escape. This axiom is particularly relevant in romantic matters, and has probably influenced your love life too. Now, the forgotten part of this characteristic is that marriage does not erase or change it. Whenever one marriage partner grovels in his own disrespect, when he reveals his fear of rejection by his mate, when he begs and pleads for a handout, he often faces a bewildering attitude of disdain from the one he needs and loves. Just as in the premarital relationship, nothing douses more water on a romantic flame than for one partner to fling himself emotionally on the other, accepting disrespect in stride. He says in effect, No matter how badly you treat me, I'll still be here at your feet, because I can't survive without you. That is the best way I know to kill a beautiful friendship. So, what am I recommending? That husbands and wives scratch and claw each other to show their independence? No. That they play a sneaky cat and mouse game to recreate a challenge? Not at all. I am merely suggesting that self-respect and dignity be maintained in the relationship, 
Let's look at a case in point. Suppose that one partner, the husband, begins to show signs of disinterest in his wife. Let's say that their sex life has been rather dull lately, and the sense of emotional togetherness is more of a memory than a reality. The decline of a marriage is rarely brought about by a blowout. It's usually a slow leak. Then the relationship reaches a low point, and the husband consistently treats his wife rudely and disrespectfully in public, pulling behind a wall of silence when they are at home. These are symptoms of a condition which I call the trapped syndrome. More often than not, the man is thinking these kinds of thoughts. I'm 35 years old, or whatever age, and I'm not getting any younger. Do I really want to spend the rest of my life with this one woman? I'm bored with her, and there are others who interest me more. But there's no way out, because I'm stuck. These are the feelings which usually precede esoteric infidelity, and they certainly can be felt in the strain between a husband and wife. How should a woman respond when she reads the cues and realizes that her husband feels trapped? Obviously, the worst thing she could do is reinforce the cage around him. Yet that is likely to be her initial reaction. As she thinks about how important he is to her, and what on earth she would do without him, and whether he's involved with another woman, her anxiety may compel her to grab and hold him. Her begging and pleading only drive him to disrespect her even more, and the relationship continues to splinter. There is a better way which I have found productive in counseling experience. The most successful approach to bringing a partner back toward the center of a relationship is not to follow when he moves away from it. Instead of saying, why do you do me this way? And why won't you talk to me? And why don't you care anymore? A wife should pull back a few inches herself. When she passes her husband in the hall, and would ordinarily touch him or seek his attention, she should move by him without notice. Silence by him is greeted by silence in return. She should not be hostile or aggressive, ready to explode when he finally asks her to say what is on her mind. Rather, she responds in kind, being quietly confident, independent, and mysterious. The effect of this behavior is to open the door on his trap, Instead of clamping herself to his neck like a blood-sucking leech, she releases her grip and introduces a certain challenge in his mind as well. He may begin to wonder if he has gone too far and may be losing something precious to him. If that will not turn him around, then the relationship is stone-cold dead. The message I have attempted to convey is extremely difficult to express in written form and I am certain to be misinterpreted by some of my readers on this issue. I have not suggested that women rise up in anger, that they stamp their feet and demand their domestic rights, or that they sulk and pout in silence. Please do not associate me with those contemporary voices which are mobilizing feminine troops for all-out sexual combat. Nothing is less attractive to me than an angry woman who is determined to grab her share, one way or the other. No, the answer is not found in hostile aggression, but in quiet self-respect.
In short, personal dignity in a marriage is maintained the same way it was produced during the dating days. The attitude should be, I love you and am totally committed to you, but I only control my half of the relationship. I cannot demand your love in return. You came to me of your own free will when we agreed to marry. No one forced us together. That same free will is necessary to keep our love alive. If you choose to walk away from me, I will be crushed and hurt beyond description, because I have withheld nothing of myself. Nevertheless, I will let you go and ultimately I will survive. I could not demand your affection in the beginning, and I can only request it now. Returning to the recommendation that a woman teach her husband about her needs, it can be done within the atmosphere of self-respect that I have described. In fact, it must be handled in that manner. The Meaning of Love It has been of concern to me that many young people grow up with a very distorted concept of romantic love. They are taught to confuse the real thing with infatuation and to idealize marriage into something it can never be. To help remedy this situation, I developed a brief true or false test for use in teaching groups of teenagers. But to my surprise, I found that adults do not score much higher on the quiz than their adolescent offspring. The 10-item test is reproduced below for those who would like to measure their understanding of romantic love. True or false, I believe love at first sight occurs between some people. True or false, I believe it is easy to distinguish real love from infatuation. True or false. I believe people who sincerely love each other will not fight and argue. True or false, I believe God selects one particular person for each of us to marry, and he will guide us together. True or false, I believe if a man and woman genuinely love each other, then hardships and troubles will have little or no effect on their relationship. True or false, I believe it is better to marry the wrong person than to remain single and lonely throughout life. True or false, I believe it is not harmful to have sexual intercourse before marriage if the couple has a meaningful relationship. True or false, I believe if a couple is genuinely in love, that condition is permanent, lasting a lifetime. True or false, I believe short courtships, six months or less, are best. True or false, I believe teenagers are more capable of genuine love than are older people. While there are undoubtedly some differences of opinion regarding the answers for this quiz, I feel strongly about what I consider to be correct responses to each item. In fact, I believe many of the common marital hang-ups develop from a misunderstanding of these ten issues. The confusion begins when boy meets girl and the entire sky lights up in romantic profusion. Smoke and fire are followed by lightning and thunder, and alas, two trembly-voiced adolescents find themselves knee-deep in true love. Adrenaline and 64 other hormones 
are dumped into the cardiovascular system by the pint, and every nerve is charged with 110 volts of electricity. Then two little fellows go racing up the respective backbones and blast their exhilarating message into each spinning head. This is it. The search is over. You've found the perfect human being. Hooray for love! For our romantic young couple, it is simply too wonderful to behold. They want to be together 24 hours a day, to take walks in the rain and sit by the fire, and kiss and munch and cuddle. They get all choked up just thinking about each other, and it doesn't take long for the subject of marriage to arise. So they set the date and reserve the chapel and contact the minister and order the flowers. The big night arrives, amidst mother's tears and dad's grins and jealous bridesmaids and bratty little flower girls. The candles are lit, and two beautiful songs are butchered by the bride's sister. Then the vows are muttered, and the rings are placed on trembling fingers, and the preacher tells the groom to kiss his new wife. Then they sprint up the aisle, each flashing thirty-two teeth, on the way to the reception room. Their friends and well-wishers hug and kiss the bride, and roll their eyes at the groom, and eat the awful cake and follow the instructions of the perspiring photographer. Finally, the new Mr. and Mrs. run from the church in a flurry of rice and confetti, and strike out on their honeymoon. So far the beautiful dream remains intact, but it is living on borrowed time. The first night in the motel is not only less exciting than advertised, it turns into a comical disaster. She is exhausted and tense, and he is self-conscious and phony. From the beginning, sex is tinged with the threat of possible failure. Their vast expectations about the marital bed lead to disappointment and frustration and fear. Since most human beings have a neurotic desire to feel sexually adequate, each partner tends to blame his mate for their orgasmic problems, which will eventually add a note of anger and resentment to their relationship. About three o'clock on the second afternoon, he gives ten minutes serious thought to the fateful question. Have I made an enormous mistake? His silence increases her anxieties, and the seeds of disenchantment are born. Each partner has far too much time to think about the consequences of this new relationship, and they both begin to feel trapped. Their initial argument is a silly thing. They struggle momentarily over how much money to spend for dinner on the third night of the honeymoon. She wants to go someplace romantic to charge up the atmosphere, and he wants to eat with Ronald McDonald. The flare-up only lasts a few moments and is followed by apologies, but some harsh words have been exchanged which took the keen edge off the beautiful dream. They will soon learn to hurt each other more effectively. Somehow they make it through the six-day trip and drive home to set up house together. Then the world starts to splinter and disintegrate before their eyes. The next fight is bigger and better than the first. He leaves home for two hours and she calls her mother. Throughout the first year they will be engaged in an enormous contest of wills, each vying for power and leadership. And in the midst of this tug of war, 
She staggers out of the obstetrician's office with the words ringing in her ears, I have some good news for you, Mrs. Jones. If there is anything on earth that Mrs. Jones does not need at that time, it is good news from an obstetrician. From there to the final conflict, we see two disappointed, confused, and deeply hurt young people, wondering how it all came about. We also see a little tow-headed lad who will never enjoy the benefits of a stable home. He'll be raised by his mother and will always wonder, why doesn't Dad live here anymore? The picture I have painted does not reflect every young marriage, obviously, but it accurately represents far too many of them. The divorce rate is higher in America than in any civilized nation in the world, and it is rising. In the case of our disillusioned young couple, what happened to their romantic dream? How did the relationship that began with such enthusiasm turn so quickly into hatred and hostility? They could not possibly have been more enamored with each other at the beginning, but their happiness blew up in their startled faces. Why didn't it last? How can others avoid the same unpleasant surprise? First, we need to understand the true meaning of romantic love. Perhaps the answers to our quiz will help accomplish that objective. 1. I believe love at first sight occurs between some people. Though some readers will disagree with me, love at first sight is a physical and emotional impossibility. Why? Because love is not simply a feeling of romantic excitement. It is more than a desire to marry a potential partner. It goes beyond intense sexual attraction. It exceeds the thrill at having captured a highly desirable social prize. These are emotions that are unleashed at first sight, but they do not constitute love. I wish the whole world knew that fact. These temporary feelings differ from love in that they place the spotlight on the one experiencing them. What is happening to me? This is the most fantastic thing I've ever felt. I think I am in love. You see, these emotions are selfish in the sense that they are motivated by our gratification. They have little to do with the new lover. Such a person has not fallen in love with another person. He has fallen in love with love. And there is an enormous difference between the two. The popular songs in the world of teenage music reveal a vast ignorance of the meaning of love. One immortal number asserts, Before the dance was through, I knew I was in love with you. I wonder if the crooner will be quite so confident tomorrow morning. Another confesses, I didn't know just what to do, so I whispered, I love you. That one really gets to me. The idea of basing a lifetime commitment on sheer confusion seems a bit shaky at best. The Partridge family recorded a song a few years ago which also betrays a lack of understanding of real love. It said, I woke up in love today because I went to sleep with you on my mind. You see, love in this sense is nothing more than a frame of mind. And it is just about that permanent. Finally. 
a rock group of the 60s called The Doors takes the prize for the most ignorant musical number of the century. It was called, Hello, I Love You, Won't You Tell Me Your Name? Did you know that the idea of marriage based on romantic affection is a very recent development in human affairs? Prior to about 1200 AD, weddings were arranged by the families of the bride and groom, and it never occurred to anyone that they were supposed to, quote, fall in love. In fact, the concept of romantic love was actually popularized by William Shakespeare. There are times when I wish the old Englishmen were here to help us straighten out the mess he initiated. Real love, in contrast to popular notions, is an expression of the deepest appreciation for another human being. It is an intense awareness of his or her needs and longings, past, present, and future. It is unselfish and giving and caring. And believe me, friends, these are not attitudes one falls into at first sight, as though we were tumbling into a ditch. I have developed a lifelong love for my wife, but it was not something I fell into. I grew into it. And that process took time. I had to know her before I could appreciate the depth and stability of her character, to become acquainted with the nuances of her personality, which I now cherish. The familiarity from which love has blossomed simply could not be generated on, quote, some enchanted evening across a crowded room. One cannot love an unknown object, regardless of how attractive or sexy or nubile it is. Number two, I believe it is easy to distinguish real love from infatuation. The answer is, again, false. That wild ride at the start of a romantic adventure bears all the earmarks of a lifetime trip. Just try to tell a starry-eyed 16-year-old dreamer that he is not really in love that he's merely infatuated. He'll whip out his guitar and sing you a song. He knows what he feels, and he feels great. But he'd better enjoy the roller coaster ride while it lasts, because it has a predictable end point. I must stress this fact with the greatest emphasis. The exhilaration of infatuation is never a permanent condition. Period. If you expect to live on the top of that mountain year after year, you can forget it. As I discussed in the second chapter, emotions swing from high to low to high in cyclical rhythm, and since romantic excitement is an emotion, it too will certainly oscillate. Therefore, if the thrill of sexual encounter is identified as genuine love, then disillusionment and disappointment are already knocking at the door. How many vulnerable young couples fall in love with love on the first date, and lock themselves in marriage before the natural swing of their emotions has even progressed through the first dip? They then wake up one morning without that neat feeling and conclude that love has died. In reality, it was never there in the first place. They were fooled by an emotional high. I was trying to explain this up-and-down characteristic of our psychological nature to a group of hundred young married couples to whom I was speaking. During the discussion period, 
Someone asked one young man in the group why he got married so young. And he replied, Because I didn't know about that wiggly line until it was too late. Alas, tis true. That wiggly line has trapped more than one young romanticist. The wiggly line is manipulated up and down by the circumstances of life. Even when a man and woman love each other deeply and genuinely, they will find themselves supercharged on one occasion and emotionally bland on another. However, their love is not defined by the highs and lows, but is dependent on a commitment of their will. I attempted to express this thought to my wife on an anniversary card, written approximately six years ago. To my darling little wife, Shirley, on the occasion of our eighth anniversary. I'm sure you remember the many, many occasions during our eight years of marriage when the tide of love and affection soared high above the crest, times when our feeling for each other was almost limitless. This kind of intense emotion can't be brought about voluntarily, but it often accompanies a time of particular happiness. We felt it when I was offered my first professional position. We felt it when the world's most precious child came home from the maternity ward of Huntington Hospital. We felt it when the University of Southern California chose to award a doctoral degree to me. But emotions are strange. We felt the same closeness when the opposite kind of event took place, when threat and potential disaster entered our lives. We felt an intense closeness when a medical problem threatened to postpone our marriage plans. We felt it when you were hospitalized last year. I felt it intensely when I knelt over your unconscious form after a grinding automobile accident. I'm trying to say this. Both happiness and threat bring that overwhelming appreciation and affection for our beloved sweethearts. But the fact is, most of life is made up of neither disaster nor unusual hilarity. Rather, it is composed of the routine, calm, everyday events in which we participate. And during these times, I enjoy the quiet, serene love that actually surpasses the effervescent display in many ways. It is not as exuberant, perhaps, but it runs deep and solid. I find myself firmly in that kind of love on this eighth anniversary. Today, I feel the steady and quiet affection that comes from a devoted heart. I am committed to you and your happiness, more now than I've ever been. I want to remain your sweetheart. When events throw us together emotionally, we will enjoy the thrill and romantic excitement. But during life's routine, like today, my love stands undiminished. Happy Anniversary to my wonderful wife, your Jim. The key phrase in my statement is, I am committed to you. You see, my love for Shirley is not blown back and forth by the winds of change, by circumstances and environmental influences. Even though my fickle emotions jump from one extreme to another, 
my commitment remains solidly anchored in place. I have chosen to love my wife, and that choice is sustained by an uncompromising will. In sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, from this day forward. This essential commitment of the will is sorely missing in so many modern marriages. I love you, they seem to say, as long as I feel attracted to you, or as long as someone else doesn't look better, or as long as it is to my advantage to continue the relationship. Sooner or later, this uncommitted love will certainly vaporize. How, then, can real love be distinguished from temporary infatuation? If the feeling is unreliable, how can one assess the commitment of his will? There is only one answer to that question. It takes time. The best advice I can give a couple contemplating marriage, or any other important decision, is this. Make no important, life-shaping decisions quickly or impulsively, and when in doubt, stall for time. That's not a bad suggestion for all of us to apply. Number three. I believe people who sincerely love each other will not fight or argue. I doubt if this third item actually requires an answer. Some marital conflict is as inevitable as the sunrise, even in loving marriages. There is a difference, however, between healthy and unhealthy combat, depending on the way the disagreement is handled. In an unstable marriage, the hostility is usually hurled directly at the partner. You never do anything right. Why did I ever marry you? You are incredibly dumb and you're getting more like your mother every day. These personal comments strike at the heart of one's self-worth and produce an internal upheaval. They often cause the wounded partner to respond in like manner, hurling back every unkind and hateful remark he can concoct, punctuated with tears and profanity. The avowed purpose of this kind of infighting is to hurt, and the words will never be forgotten, even though uttered in a moment of irrational anger. Obviously, such vicious combat is extremely damaging to a marital relationship. Healthy conflict, on the other hand, remains focused on the issue around which the disagreement began. You are spending money faster than I can earn it. It upsets me when you don't tell me you'll be late for dinner. I was embarrassed when you made me look foolish at the party last night. These areas of struggle, though admittedly emotional and tense, are much less damaging to the egos of the opposing forces. A healthy couple can work through them by compromise and negotiation with few embedded barbs to pluck out the following morning. The ability to fight properly may be the most important concept to be learned by newlyweds. Those who never comprehend the technique are usually left with two alternatives. One, turn the anger and resentment inward in silence, where it will fester and accumulate through the years. Or two, blast away at the personhood of one's mate. The divorce courts are well represented by couples in both categories.
Number four. I believe God selects one particular person for each of us to marry, and He will guide us together. A young man whom I was counseling once told me that he awoke in the middle of the night with a strong impression that God wanted him to marry a young lady whom he had only dated casually a few times. They were not even going together at that moment and hardly knew each other. The next morning, he called her and relayed the message which God had supposedly sent him during the night. The girl figured she shouldn't argue with God, and she accepted the proposal. They have now been married for seven years and have struggled for survival since their wedding day. Anyone who believes that God guarantees a successful marriage to every Christian is in for a shock. This is not to say that he is disinterested in the choice of a mate, or that he will not answer a specific request for guidance on this all-important decision. Certainly, his will should be sought in such a critical matter, and I consulted him repeatedly before proposing to my wife. However, I do not believe that God performs a routine matchmaking service for everyone who worships him. He has given us judgment, common sense. and discretionary powers, and he expects us to exercise these abilities in matters matrimonial. Those who believe otherwise are likely to enter marriage glibly, thinking, God would have blocked this development if he didn't approve of it. To such confident people, I can only say, lots of luck. Number five, I believe if a man and woman genuinely love each other, then hardships and troubles will have little or no effect on their relationship. Another common misconception about the meaning of true love is that it inevitably stands like the rock of Gibraltar against the storms of life. Many people apparently believe that love is destined to conquer all. The Beatles endorsed this notion with their song, All we need is love, love. Love is all we need. Unfortunately, we need a bit more. Much of my professional life is currently being invested in the Division of Child Development, Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. We see numerous genetic and metabolic problems throughout the year, most of which involve mental retardation in our young patients. The emotional impact of such a diagnosis on the families involved is sometimes devastating. Even in stable, loving marriages, the guilt and disappointment of having produced a, quote, broken child often drive a wedge of isolation between the distressed mother and father. In a similar manner, the fiber of love can be weakened by financial hardships, disease, business setbacks, or prolonged separation. In short, we must conclude that love is vulnerable to pain and trauma, and often wobbles when assaulted by life. Number six. I believe it is better to marry the wrong person than to remain single and lonely throughout life. Again, the answer is false. Generally speaking, it is less painful to be searching for an end to loneliness than to be embroiled in the emotional combat of a sour marriage. 
Yet the threat of being an old maid, a term I detest, causes many girls to grab the first train that rambles down the marital track, and too often it offers a one-way ticket to disaster. Number seven, I believe it is not harmful to have sexual intercourse before marriage, if the couple has a meaningful relationship. This item represents the most dangerous of the popular misconceptions about romantic love, both for individuals and for our future as a nation. During the past 15 years, we have witnessed the tragic disintegration of our sexual mores and traditional concepts of morality. Responding to a steady onslaught by the entertainment industry and by the media, our people have begun to believe that premarital intercourse is a noble experience and extramarital encounters are healthy and homosexuality is acceptable and bisexuality is even better. These views reflect the sexual stupidity of the age in which we live, yet they are believed and applied by millions of American citizens. A recent study of college students revealed that 25% of them have shared bedrooms with a member of the opposite sex for at least three months. According to lifestyles and campus communities, 66% of college students reportedly believe premarital intercourse is acceptable between any two people who consent or when a couple has dated some and care a lot about each other." End quote. I have never considered myself to be a prophet of doom, but I am admittedly alarmed by the statistical evidence of this nature. I view these trends with fear and trepidation, seeing in them the potential death of our society and our way of life. Mankind has known intuitively for at least 50 centuries that indiscriminate sexual activity represented both an individual and a corporate threat to survival. The wisdom of those years has now been documented. Anthropologist J.D. Unwin conducted an exhaustive study of the 88 civilizations which have existed in the history of the world. Each culture has reflected a similar life cycle, beginning with a strict code of sexual conduct and ending with the demand for a complete freedom to express individual passion. Unwin reports that every society which extended sexual permissiveness to its people was soon to perish. There have been no exceptions. Why do you suppose the reproductive urge within us is so relevant to cultural survival? It is because the energy which holds a people together is sexual in nature. The physical attraction between men and women causes them to establish a family and invest themselves in its development. It is this force which encourages them to work and save and toil to ensure the survival of their families. This sexual energy provides the impetus for the raising of healthy children and for the transfer of values from one generation to the next. It urges a man to work when he would rather play. It causes a woman to save when she would rather spend. In short, the sexual aspect of our nature, when released exclusively within the family, produces stability and responsibility that would not otherwise occur.
and when a nation is composed of millions of devoted, responsible family units, the entire society is stable and responsible and resilient. If sexual energy within the family is the key to a healthy society, then its release outside those boundaries is potentially catastrophic. The very force which binds a people together then becomes the agent for its own destruction. Perhaps this point can be illustrated by an analogy between sexual energy in the nuclear family and physical energy in the nucleus of a tiny atom. Electrons, neutrons, and protons are held in delicate balance by an electrical force within each atom. But when that atom and its neighbors are split in nuclear fission, as in an atomic bomb, the energy which has provided the internal stability is then released with unbelievable power and destruction. There is ample reason to believe that this comparison between the atom and the family is more than incidental. Who can deny that a society is seriously weakened when the intense sexual urge between men and women becomes an instrument for suspicion and intrigue within millions of individual families, when a woman never knows what her husband is doing when away from home, when a husband can't trust his wife in his absence, when half of the brides are pregnant at the altar, when each newlywed has slept with numerous partners, losing the exclusive wonder of the marital bed, when everyone is doing his own thing, particularly that which brings him immediate sensual gratification. Unfortunately, the most devastated victim of an immoral society of this nature is the vulnerable little child who hears his parents scream and argue. Their tension and frustrations spill over into his world, and the instability of his home leaves its ugly scars on his young mind. Then he watches his parents separate in anger, and he says goodbye to the father he needs and loves. Or perhaps we should speak of the thousands of babies born to unmarried teenage mothers each year, many of whom will never know the meaning of a warm, nurturing home. Or maybe we should discuss the rampant scourge of venereal disease, which has reached epidemic proportions among America's youth. This is the true vomitus of the sexual revolution, and I am tired of hearing it romanticized and glorified. God has clearly forbidden irresponsible sexual behavior, not to deprive us of fun and pleasure, but to spare us the disastrous consequences of this festering way of life. Those individuals and those nations which choose to defy his commandments on this issue will pay a dear price for their folly. My views on this subject may be unpopular, but I believe them with everything within me. Number 8. I believe if a couple is genuinely in love, that condition is permanent, lasting a lifetime. Love, even genuine love, is a fragile thing. It must be maintained and protected if it is to survive. Love can perish when a husband works seven days a week, when there is no time for romantic activity, when he and his wife forget how to talk to each other, the keen edge in a loving relationship may be dulled through the routine pressures of living, as I experienced during the early days of my marriage to Shirley. 
I was working full-time and trying to finish my doctorate at the University of Southern California. My wife was teaching school and maintaining our small home. I remember clearly the evening that I realized what this busy life was doing to our relationship. We still loved each other, but it had been too long since we had felt the spirit of warmth and closeness. My textbooks were pushed aside that night, and we went for a long walk together. The following semester, I carried a very light load in school and postponed my academic goals so as to preserve that which I valued more highly. Where does your marriage rank on your hierarchy of values? Does it get the leftovers and scraps from your busy schedule? Or is it something of great worth to be preserved and supported? It can die if left untended. Number nine. I believe short courtships six months or less, are best? The answer to this question is incorporated in the reply to the second item regarding infatuation. Short courtships require impulsive decisions about lifetime commitments, and that is risky business at best. Number 10. I believe teenagers are more capable of genuine love than are older people. If this item were true, then we would be hard-pressed to explain why half the teenage marriages end in divorce in the first five years. To the contrary, the kind of love I have been describing, unselfish, giving, caring commitment, requires a sizable dose of maturity to make it work. And maturity is a partial thing in most teenagers. Adolescent romance is an exciting part of growing up, but it seldom meets the criteria for the deeper relationships of which successful marriages are composed. Questions and Answers Question I have often wondered why women seem to need romantic involvement so much more than men. Why do you think emotional coolness is a greater agitation to wives than to their husbands? Answer An unknown portion of this romantic need in women is probably related to genetic influences implemented by the hypothalamus region in the brain. Beyond this, the characteristic features probably result from differences in early experiences of girls and boys. The entire orientation for little girls in our society is toward romantic excitement. It begins during the preschool years with childhood fantasies, such as Cinderella dazzling the crowd, and particularly the prince, with her irresistible charm, or Sleeping Beauty being tenderly kissed back to consciousness by the handsome young man of her dreams. While little boys are identifying with football superstars and gun-toting cowboys, their sisters are playing Barbie dolls and other role-oriented games which focus on dating and heterosexual relationships. Later, the typical high school girl will spend much more time daydreaming about marriage 
than will her masculine counterpart. He will think about sex, to be sure, but she will be glassy-eyed over love. She will buy and read the romantic pulp magazines, not he. Thus, males and females come to marriage with a lifelong difference in outlook and expectation. Question. Why, then, are men so uninformed of this common aspect of feminine nature? Answer. They haven't been told. For centuries, women have been admonished to meet their husband's sexual needs or else. Every female alive knows that the masculine appetite for sex demands gratification, one way or the other. What I have been attempting to say is that a woman's need for emotional fulfillment is just as pressing and urgent as the physiological requirement for sexual release in the male. Both can be stymied, but at an enormous cost. And as such, it is as unfortunate for a man to ignore his wife's need for romantic love as it is for her to foreclose on his sexual appetite. For the benefit of my masculine readers, let me restate my message more directly. Your wife is probably more vulnerable to your warmth and kindness than you have realized heretofore. Nothing builds her esteem more effectively than for you to let her, and others, know that you respect and value her as a person. And nothing destroys her self-confidence more quickly than your ridicule or rejection. If you doubt this fact, I urge you to conduct a simple experiment. At the breakfast table tomorrow morning, spontaneously tell your children how fortunate they are to have the mother whom God has given them. Without directly speaking to her, tell them how hard she works to keep them clean and well-fed, and then mention how much you appreciate and love her. Just drop these words casually into the middle of your conversation while she is scrambling the eggs. Her reaction will give you valuable insight into her emotional state. If she goes into shock and burns the eggs, then it has definitely been too long since you gave her an unsolicited compliment. If she flashes a mischievous smile and suggests that you missed the 805 train this once, you'll know then how to cure the headaches she's been having at bedtime each evening. But if she fails to notice your comments, you must recognize that she is in critical condition and can only be resuscitated by taking her on a weekend trip to a nearby resort, at which time you will have flowers, candy, and a love letter waiting in the selected motel. How long has it been since you consciously attempted to convey respect to your wife? Question. Do most women still want a strong husband who will assume leadership in their home? Answer. Someone said, A woman wants a man she can look up to, but one who won't look down on her. That quotation is very old, but it has weathered the women's liberation movement and is still rather accurate. Again, a woman is usually comfortable in following masculine leadership if her man is loving, gentle, and worthy of her respect. Question. I am a 19-year-old girl and I'm still single. You have described some pretty depressing circumstances that can occur in marriage. If that's the case, why should I bother to get married at all? Answer. The depressing problems we've been examining represent the worst in married life. Perhaps we have not spent enough time reviewing the more positive aspects. I can tell you from a personal point of view that my marriage to Shirley 
is the best thing that has ever happened to me, and there are millions who can offer a similar testimony. You see, life involves problems, no matter what your choices are. If you remain single, your frustrations will be of a different kind, but they will occur nevertheless. As to whether you should get married or not, I would offer you the same advice given me when I was an eight-year-old child by a Sunday school teacher whose name I don't even remember. Don't marry the person you think you can live with. Marry the person you think you can't live without, if such an individual ever comes along. Either way, I think you're ahead by knowing in advance that married life offers no panacea, that if it is going to reach the potential, it will require an all-out investment by both husband and wife.